Welcome, everybody. Today is Wednesday, April 28th in 2021, and this is Get Smarter and Make Stuff. Um, I am so thrilled today to welcome to the show my friend, my former comrade in arms, both in things software and in things podcasting, Russ Olson. Welcome to the show, Russ. Oh, thanks, Craig. It's great to be here. Congratulations on the new show. I, I knew podcasting was in your blood. <laughs> well, I did a pretty good job of getting out of my blood for a while, but um, I don't know. I was like just sitting around... I had come up with this new website, you know, it was a website at the time anyway, I guess it's a bunch of things now, a YouTube channel and whatnot. And because like, that's what I've been into forever, getting smarter and making things. And I was sitting there going, man, like this is a perfect fit for a podcast because you only need to ask two questions. (laughs) And yet I have all these people I know that if I simply ask them these two questions, what are you, what are you making and what are you learning um, that we could go on forever talking about this stuff. And your name um, came to my mind uh, pretty much right away when I was sitting down to jot down lists of people that I would want to talk to because we've had lots of conversations about making things and we've had lots of conversations about, you know, sort of philosophy, which is sort of the learning side of things and about, you know, various things we're into. So I thought it would be super useful to, or super interesting, uh, hopefully useful, but I mean, the main thing is interesting to talk to you about what you've been learning and making. So, yeah, so so um, it's interesting when we talked about uh, doing this podcast, I, I I agreed, and then I sat down and I thought, oh my goodness, have I made anything or have I learned anything recently? <laughs> um, oh, oh no! And I was sort of I went through this horrified phase of you know I haven't made anything and I haven't learned anything and. Uh, in decades, you know, um, I I cannot believe that to be true. We've we've certainly talked recently. The other thing is, I actually um the I, I've been thinking about this a little bit, and sorry to nah. jump aside for a minute, but um the the question, what are you making and what are you learning? I actually those aren't quite right. Yep, it's it's really what what have you made? Are you making? Are you going to make? What have you learned? Are you learning? Are you going to learn? It's really about learning. I don't quite know how to phrase that in a really pithy way, but like, if you want to talk about something you made twenty years ago, fine by me. That's interesting stuff too. Yeah. So, so the second half of that story was I started making a list of the things that I've made just lately, or at least started making, and then I was horrified in a whole different way. <laughs> so. Imagine my surprise. Not at all surprised. So, um, you know, what, what is it, uh, you know, starting is not a problem, finishing sometimes is, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I've, well, I, I can't. Go ahead. The, the one thing that, of course, since you were asking the question, the one thing that comes to mind that I've been making for the last I don't know, four or five years is the Cognicast, the podcast mm-hmm. that you started and we worked on. And eventually I took over when, when you left uh, mm-hmm. Cognitech. Um, and the fun thing about that podcast is that, so uh, just to kind of back up. So you originally did the podcast as like a one man band, you did everything and then you were getting tired of doing particularly the editing. So I took over the editing and mm-hmm. edited the podcast for, I don't know, a year or two. And then you left the company and I kind of took over the benevolent dictator role on the podcast. Um, and you had done a good job of kind of cutting the podcast, the, the job of 
pushing a podcast out the door into a whole series of like separate tasks that wouldn't be too onerous for any given person. Um, and at some point I realized that I had done more than half of those jobs and, and I set out to do them all. Mm. And the last one, the, the most, like the last one. So I could sort of say I had done everything was, uh, uh, and again, I think it was your idea was to do custom uh, cover art for each podcast. So kind of come up with uh, something that sort of represents the guest or what you talked about or whatever. And I started doing that, I think, like two and a half, three years ago, just, you know, once a month or so, come up with a 1700 by 1700 pixel image that has something to do with this month's podcast and the, the absolutely remarkable thing is that is my favorite job of, you know, of hosting, editing, producing, uh, being the chief cook and bottle washer of that podcast. Absolutely the most fun is doing the artwork for it, which uh, if you'd asked me before it, before I had started doing it, I would have said, oh, no, that's going to be awful. I'm not an artist, uh, you know. Yeah. And so this is a really cool thing that you've done because, um, I mean, I was intimidated at just coming up with the logo for the new website, let alone like coming up with a unique piece of art every time I, I just wouldn't even take that on. And I'm, I'm actually looking at the, your website right now, um, that with the, the podcast covers and they're great, right? I mean, they're just well, very, they, no, they really are. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't say they're simply that I'm just kind of paging through here and um, there's something very interesting in each one. I mean, I can see where, you know, like you're, you're oftentimes taking an existing image and adding some text or whatever, right. but still, um, they are unique. And I, I did always love this about the show. I never did the cover, so I can't take any, any credit other than for the initial, um, impetus of saying, Hey, we have this amazing artist in the form of Michael Prento. Um, maybe he would be willing to produce some cover art for each show. Um, it is something that I would love to do for this show, um, but I just don't see it happening. I, I, I really, you know, one of the lessons, and I think you kind of alluded to this, was one of the lessons for me from doing the last show was I have to make it easy enough that I can keep doing right. this, yes. right? Because it, it gets to be a lot. Um, but man, I can't imagine uh, making art for each one. That's really cool, though, uh, that you've done that. And uh, I've been really pleased to see the the show continuing and continuing um, continuing well. It's been It's been cool to to keep that going. It very much is a show about making things and learning things. I think the uh, Cognicast, um, it's in a, a more um, specific domain, right? It's, right, it's about right. making things software. and yeah, about part. software and even specifically closure, yeah. which, uh, but it's highly worth listening to. If you're at all interested in that kind of thing, I would highly recommend people go and, and check it out. Anyway, I didn't mean to, to jump in there, but I mean, your covers are really cool. Well, we'll put a link in the, in the show notes for people to go check those out. Yeah. It, it turned the, the thing I learned from doing those, those cover arts is apparently I like spirals. Um, spirals <laughs> appear in many of the, uh, of, of the images. Um, but the one, uh, oddly, the one that I'm, I think I'm most proud of is uh, we had Jared Benford on, uh, as the guest, Jared is a guy who works at Cognitech or Newbank now. Um, and it's just a great, interesting guy. And he got to talking about his love of the Godzilla movies, like the old, <laughs> you know, kind of Japanese old, old school Godzilla movies. And so I 
sat down to make a Godzilla-like poster that didn't actually say Godzilla or anything on it. And it just, it has that, I think anyway, it has that sort of Japanese monster movie feel to it without ever saying, uh, you know, I'm a poster for a Japanese monster movie. It has the kind of the Durham skyline and and I don't know. For for my money, that's the one that I'm probably most proud of. I'm actually looking at it right now and it is very cool. As you say, it has the Durham skyline kind of in a silhouette, but with a little bit of red shading and there's a big old red meatball sun with the names of the host and the guest and some script up at the top, including some... Um, I don't know, kanji or katakana, I guess, above that. Yeah, that, that says cool. Cognacast, I think. Um, Very cool. <laughs> it says something relevant. I, you know, I, I consulted an expert. Uh, cool. So, but uh, yeah, so that uh, uh, that's something I do once a month. And it's very, you know, it's like soothing, right? Like I know, you know, we always shoot to get the podcast out at the middle of the month. So, of course, it's the last week of the month and we're kind of scurrying <laughs> around to do it uh, this week. But it is there. There's a rhythm to it that I really enjoy. Um, That's super interesting. Um, yeah. Like I said, I would f- I find like I make things right a lot. You know, I'm sorry, um, Craig, my computer blanked out on me for a second. Oh, OK. No, I think we heard everything you said. It said you something. It's a sort of uh, something you've enjoyed, even though it winds up coming down at the end of the month yeah <laughs> something soothing about it i believe was what you how you described it it's it's always the end of the month right isn't it like yeah, uh you know psychologically like the month is like you know days one through 25 or or an hour long and then you know <laughs> right so um yeah but uh yeah the, the other thing that i've been playing around with is i don't know late last year early this year i discovered esp 32s which are these little Arduino-like microcontrollers, but they're sort of uh, Arduinos on steroids. They're much faster than your typical Arduino. They have Wi-Fi. They have Bluetooth. Uh, Some of them have camera interfaces. Some of them have uh, this longer-range radio transceivers called for... uh, uh, radio system called LoRa, LoRa, um, stands for long range. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they all come built in with hall sensors and it's like the Arduino you wish Arduinos were, you know, 10 years later or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and I have spent just endless hours playing with those things, producing absolutely nothing useful, you know, um, but, well, maybe the side effect of, of getting smarter, right? I yeah. mean, that's there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, um, but it's been it's been really interesting um, to get a feeling. So you, uh, I think, like like you, I have spent much of my career um, working on larger scale software systems, right? For example, maybe a giant system that runs an online bank, uh, a fintech. Um, <laughs> right. So for those of you that don't know, Russ works for Nubank, which is a very large uh, Brazilian bank, a digital online bank, the recent acquisition of the company that we both worked for. Yeah. And and Nubank, like, you know, a lot of the software work you do, right, there is microservices and infrastructure and, you know, it's the, it, it's the Godzilla of of computer systems Mm -hmm. and i'm 
you know, with the ESP 32s, it's more like snakes on a plane, I guess. is the <laughs> <laughs> you know? Wow. Um, and it's just, it's been fascinating just to sort of see. So an ESP 32 might be something you would find in a washing machine, for example, or. Oh, really? Yeah. Or a, actually it's probably overkill for a washing machine. You certainly might find something like an ESP 32 in uh, the internet router that you might have mm. in your basement, you know, like mm-hmm. the Wi-Fi. Uh, can they um, can they run Linux? I, I would assume no, it's a microcontroller, not a microcontroller. Yeah, computer, they, right? they don't run Linux, but they will run um, free RTOS. So you can you can okay. put like a very rudimentary. So maybe maybe your Linux router is is more than an ESP thirty two can do. But it's you know it's down there at the low low end of uh, computing systems, and so they have. I mean, they have weird things like um, they ha- at least the models that I've been playing with. They have two different two different um, sections of memory. What's the right segments of memory? Mm-hmm. And the one segment is essentially byte addressable, and the other segment is only word addressable, like thirty two bit words. Um, mm-hmm. And that makes sense, you know, for whatever the heck you're doing. But it's just it's bizarre. From the point of view of like someone who does closure for a living or job yeah. or something, you know. Um, so yeah, you're like Sting, you know. Sting sings. He's got a fairly high voice, but he also plays the bass. Yeah. like he's at both ends, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's sort of uh, you know, it's like a vacation for somebody who works on a giant giant system. I'm gonna go. This is interesting because you're not the first person, even on this show, to talk about this. Really? Um, yeah, not specifically about the ESP32, but this notion that um, there's your day job and there's your hobby, and they're both creative acts, right? They're right. both about about creation, but that the hobby uh, is different, like in a, in some important way, and that it's important that it be different. So Tim came on the show, mm-hmm. and he talked about woodworking, and one of the things that he said is, you know. Um, in his day job, he's doing one thing. And when he gets done with it, he doesn't necessarily want to do software. Now, there was a, certainly a period in my life where um, when I got done with my day job doing software, the thing that I did in my spare time was software. And that's fine. And there's, right, right. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. But I have also gotten to that point um, where, you know, uh, the things that appeal to me outside of work, I enjoy my job quite a bit. I enjoyed my job when I was working with you. I enjoy my job now. But um you know, when I go into the shop, I'm generally not doing software. And in fact, there are software-like things that I do in the shop. So for instance, um, I'm actually working with a microcontroller myself right now. I'm doing a project called the Electronic Lead Screw, which is a an upgrade for my metal lathe that people can go and check out at uh, GetSmarterMakeStuff.com if they really want the details. But it has a microcontroller embedded inside it. It's a TI Launch 2904 something oh something. yeah the old 04 sure yeah right <laughs> but it's it's a really it's like you said it's like an arduino on steroids like it's 100 megahertz all this yeah. stuff um but the kind of the the notion of if there's a problem and i have to like wade into the software i don't know it's like less of a less appealing yeah. to me than the electronics that i'm doing where i'm trying to you know frustrating as it is given how awful I am like terminating cables with you know neat panel connectors so that everything kind of screws together and and looks nice and and all that that was the part that kind of drew me and I, and I wonder whether you have a sense of um of why that is is it maybe that um you know you've you've kind of climbed the hill you know and you kind of know what you're doing so- 
Um, so I, what do you think? I actually think, so I think the key thing is that your hobby needs to feel different than your work in order for it to be a hobby. But I think mm. there's, I think different people have very, very different ideas of, or, or reactions or feelings about what feels different. Um, because uh, as I was thinking about coming on this podcast, I, I naturally think about you and your woodworking. And when I think about woodworking, I also think of Tim's woodworking. Mm-hmm. And from my point of view, um, uh, particularly Tim's work. So I, I think the same thing about you, but I won't embarrass you. I think Tim's woodworking <laughs> is absolutely gorgeous. It's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. It really and I, you know, I could, I can certainly appreciate the the time and the energy and the satisfaction he gets out of it. And I, I feel the same way about the, the, like the furniture and things I've seen, seen you build, but it's that precision and caring about the last detail and making it exactly right is the thing I'm trying to get away from when mm. I'm like just doing things for fun. I don't, I sort of feel like, you know, there's, there's all sorts of disciplines when you're building software or doing really any kind of engineering and I'm sure lots of things. Um, but, you know, for me, software, getting software right is all about doing it with absolute precision and making sure you've covered every single detail that needs to be covered and none of the details. And, you know, it is like you need to have the goal in mind and you need to focus on the goal. And a big part of like when I do my thing is I don't have to do that. I can leave things undone. I can build something that's ugly, that satisfies me in some way. And that's kind of the part that makes me happy. If I, I don't know if that makes any sense. but uh, It does make sense. And I can assure you that if you come to my shop, I will show you many, many pieces <laughs> of woodworking that I have done that are nothing like the stuff that Tim does, you know, that are held together with pocket screws and plywood voids and all that good stuff. But, um, but I no, I totally get it. And in fact, um, you know, one of the things that I've sort of had to do over the last few years is remind myself that um, productivity is not the point. Right. Yes. <laughs> you, you know what yes. I mean? Like, like the, for me, it takes a couple forms that I need to watch out for. I have a, I think I mentioned this before. I have a sign on the door of my shop. It's a traffic sign. Uh, you know, it's yellow mm-hmm. with a black border. It says slow. And it is there to remind me that, um, if I go in and spend an hour in the shop that it's not what I got done in an hour, it's that I spent an hour. So like it's all to the good effectively. Um, And that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy making things in, in a, like I don't need to go mine my own iron and smelt it. And like, that's not, I mean, I would actually do that, but you know what I mean? Like it's not important that it's okay for me to take shortcuts. It's okay for me to buy tools that speed me up for the purpose of speeding them up. But, you know, but to still sort of be, I know this is an overused phrase, but it, it's one that I think is correct. Be in the moment more, right, you know? Right, Because, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, I, I think what you're saying is you don't build furniture because you need furniture. You could buy furniture. It's the <laughs> act of making the furniture and, you know, yeah. the feeling that gives you. Yeah. And, and it's the feeling you need to preserve. And I do think that, that you know, 
I, I guess I guess where I was going was that that you need to like preserve if you're going for the experience, you need to preserve the experience. Um, yeah. But but the other uh, again, I think this is like really really it's like a highly personal thing because I again in thinking about coming on this podcast, I started think I was thinking about you and Tim and the furniture that you guys build and what I think of it. Um, and I asked myself, well, do I really enjoy doing anything where I am that, you know, where I am absolutely kind of crazy about the details and getting it right? And the answer is yes, I really like writing and mm. don't get between me and a verb, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. um, it's a dangerous place to be, to be messing with my writing because I, I believe with all my heart that, uh, any bit of writing could be improved by making it sound more like me. Um, <laughs> so. I think you need that as an author, don't you, though? I mean, like, I feel like, um, you know, I don't know, it's an analogy, but like podcasting, I've been, f- I have some sort of defect that means I don't mind the sound of my own voice. Like yeah. when I go back and listen to this show later, I'm not cringing the whole time. And I get that a lot of people have that reaction. You know, I don't, I, I don't think that I have like some amazing voice or it just doesn't strike me that way. And I, but I, so, you know, it's sort of been an enabler, right. For me, because like, how could I have edited hours and hours and hours of, I mean, hopefully I'm not talking as much as the guest, but still you get to listen to yourself. Right. And is that, so is that kind of a necessary, um, I guess a necessary conceit would be an appropriate phrase, right? Yeah, I think, yeah. I, and I think, but the, you know, I, I, I I think you have to, I think as an author, if you're going to churn out 80,000 words in a book or something like that, man, you really got to, got to, uh, be okay with the sound of your own voice. Um, mm-hmm. it, well, it's funny when I'm, when I'm writing books, I will find some TV show to watch after I'm done writing, just to drown out the sound of my own voice in mm-hmm. my head. Um, because, you know, if you sit for three hours and write and you do that day after day after day, um, you're just, it, it's not like, you know, that you don't like your writing or you don't like what you're saying, but there's just that, you know, that sort of inner voice that you, at least I need to turn off. Um, I think that, uh, uh, I would not have finished my first book without the Sopranos. Let me just put it that way. Uh, <laughs> How many books have you written now? Three. And a half. Yeah, that's a lot. And a half ish. Oh, you're working on another one. I well, well, I was until uh, uh, the 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 new bank thing happened, and I've gotten really, really busy. But I do have about half of a book on functional programming that uh, is is calling to me uh, still. So I am ashamed to admit I have never read any of your previous books. Uh, I believe a couple. The, correct me if I'm wrong. The first two were about Ruby, right? That's right. So the Ruby program language, which I was never really into. Your third one, remind me. Well, third one is getting closure, which is a beginner's guide to closure, which uh, you did not need before <laughs> the time we met. You know, it's uh, it it really is. Uh, I don't know, you know, maybe I'm a programmer, but I don't know anything about this closure thing. Take me through it. Um, and uh, yeah. Cool. Well, what I, the reason I was going to mention it is that, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what the audience for this show looks like yet. I mean, it's a show about making and learning. And so I imagine makers and learners, um, you know, I would imagine we'll see a bunch of people from 
the old chill because that's kind of how people know me at least through mostly twitter um but I, I don't really know yet like are, are we going to have a lot of programmers or people that are more into woodworking or metalworking or whatever but i i do want to recommend if you are into programming at all i would highly recommend um even though i have not personally read russ's books I feel 100% comfortable recommending them to people. You have always been really, really good at explaining things. In fact, we were talking about um, what I think of as definitely one of your uh, many significant accomplishments in this area, although um, I, I hope it doesn't strike you as bad that I say it's one of your best. And I'm talking about your To the Moon talk. Sure. Um, which, you know, we were talking about Tim's talk at the same conference, which was fundamentally a talk about how tools shape your thinking, which is a fascinating area. And I said, that talk would easily have been the best talk at a conference that had a bunch of good talks, except for the fact that Russ gave a talk called To the Moon, which was also one of the best talks I've ever seen at any conference. Um, and I, I don't know, I, this is another one where I think, um, just like Tim's talk, it even though it happened to be at a programming conference, it's something that anybody would walk away from. And I think it uh, from with, uh, and anybody could walk away from and go, yeah, it was a really good talk, whether they knew anything at all about programming or not. Um, and it's interesting to me in the context of this show and maybe worth discussing a little bit because I think when you look at, so obviously it's about, you know, the, the engineering journey of, of putting people on the moon. Um, and that's sort of, it's right there for me because like that, that the, the, this whole show is, is really about kind of, I don't, I don't really have a great way to so getting, getting smarter and making stuff is correct. Like that is, that is the, the, those are the two things and how they interact is also the thing, but kind of at the bottom of it, there's this feeling of like, of like, creating with your mind, I yes. think might be a good way to put it, right? Like your hands are obviously important too. Um, but, but I don't know. I, I feel like your, your talk there was, was I, all I can say is people should definitely go watch it. And then maybe I'll just ask you to talk about, about the talk, about maybe the process of creating it, about whether it touches on any of those same themes for you. It, 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 so it's funny that that talk, um, well, well, first, thanks for the kind words. Um, I, I, I will say so. So you just added another thing. If you, uh, if you want to uh, make a list of the things that I do really enjoy doing, and absolutely am completely committed to getting what right. I guess it's public speaking, uh, but I tend not to count that because I have that fear of making an idiot of myself in front of strangers. So that's. Uh, <laughs> You know, wanting to get it right is a little bit of self-preservation. I, I, I will say the the last time I gave the to the moon talk, it was at a conference in Milan, Italy. And about an hour before the conference started, um, they told me that they were going to do this uh, kind of laser light show with music and have <laughs> me walk um, from kind of the back of the room. And it was this big, like, almost like, rock show introduction which was both cool and embarrassing and <laughs> freaked me out a little bit uh, all at the same time but 
So I thought there, about it. Was there a smoke machine? Uh, there were no Please smoke machines, but oh, there were definitely right. like those, uh, you know, those kind of lights that swivel that you see in concerts. And yes. uh, yeah, it was, it was that kind of thing. But anyway, so I thought about it, you know, I had about an hour. Um, and one of the things that I always do when I'm going to talk is try and like check out the stage, check out the microphone, you know, just kind of so that, that when I get up there to talk, it's not the first time I've ever been in this place. So I did this thing where I just like walked the path I needed to walk up to that stage like two or three times, just so, you know, when I'm doing it uh, in the, the middle of all these lights and everything, A, I'm not falling over, but also so I'm kind of centered. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember the reaction of the, of the uh, conference organizers when the, they sort of asked me what I was doing and I told them and they were like, really, you're a speaker and you're at a technical conference and you're getting ready. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so that talk, um, which is about, so the, the background of the talk is that I'm old enough that I remember the, uh, the first moon landing in particular, and it was, uh, kind of a seminal moment in my life. And, uh, but the talk actually um, has kind of a funny beginning because it it started out as just like something I was doing as kind of a challenge because I was working for uh, a military contractor. And so uh, that company was full of ex-military people who were kind of stoic and not very react. You know, they tended not to react. Uh, they kept their feelings mm-hmm. to themselves frequently. Um, and I did, a, and they had this like lunchtime seminar thing. And I did a couple of talks for the lunchtime seminar, which I thought were pretty good talks and I got no reaction from them. And so I sat down and I'm like, okay, what can I cook up that will generate a reaction? <laughs> and it was just, and so I, I thought through my life and I came up with this, um, and it was a, it was a, less emotional version of the talk that you remember from the closure conference. Um, but, uh, so I did it and I got a really good reaction and I was happy with it. Um, and it's, it's actually what made me start thinking about maybe writing technical books and things like that. Like, Hey, maybe I'm, I'm okay at this, but the talk itself went through all of these revisions and got more and more personal and more and more, um, kind of emotional. And at some point I realized that it worked because it was a talk that, um, it's different than most of what you see in technical conferences, even like keynote, um, Mm -hmm. kinds of things in technical conferences. And the, eventually I realized it's, um, I'm probably going to say this word wrong, but the, the emotion that it, it hooks into is pathos. I'm not sure I'm mm. saying that right. I've only I ever believe read that's the correct. word. But essentially yeah, like the, right. the sense of wonder, uh, the sense of, of being connected to something bigger than yourself. And that is, uh, and once I figured that out, like the rest of it was easy because um, I, I kind of had this framework for thinking about the talk, which was, I'm, I'm crossing a boundary into a little bit, maybe not like really uh, untrodden territory, but, but sort of 
I'm going to a place where not many people go. And so mm -hmm. this is going to be new to people. And that's always like, uh, you know, it'll either be a disaster or it'll be wonderful. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. In fact, I saw when you gave that talk internally at Cognitech, we were both there and uh, there were, there were eyes that were not entirely dry. One or two of them may have been mine. <laughs> well, you know, you know, what's funny. It's, uh, I, the, the other thing that I, I, so that's not the first time I've heard that. And, and again, mm -hmm. it's, it's really yep. kind of you to say it, that's true. but, um, my point of view, like that was a talk that I had done at various places, um, over the years, various versions of it at various times. And I kept tweaking with it and making it better and sort of going for this feeling of like awe. And um, I hadn't done it for a long time before I did it for the internal thing, but this is like a story I've lived with my whole life. And I can remember doing, so, so I hadn't done the talk in a long time. We were having a company meeting. We were all jammed into this relatively small conference room. And so the people, you know, my, my colleagues who were listening to the talk were right there next to me as I'm doing the talk. And again, this is like a story I've lived with my whole life. And to me, it's sort of like just part of who I am. And I finished with the talk. And I remember Justin was sort of sitting, you know, just off to my right. And he stood up like immediately after I finished the talk. And the thought ran through my head, really, he's just going to leave like, it didn't have any effect on him. <laughs> and what he actually did was he hugged me. Um, yeah. So I, I think that that's one of the things uh, that making stuff, make a talk, make furniture, make whatever. Um, I think when it has a surprising effect on other people, I think that is one of the best things about, you know, that talk means something to me. I did not realize it would mean similar things to everyone, you know, or many people uh, who've heard it. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting to me because like, you know, you sort of heard me, I think even in this show, but I think in the others as well, kind of cast around a bit because the, you know, get smarter and make stuff. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a catchy little phrase, but I've, it means something to me that's bigger than just, you know, making things or getting smarter. And I think you're, you're kind of touching on that a bit. And, and the reason I'm doing the show is because I think that's true for a lot of people, right? Like I think when you meet another maker, I really like that term, by the way, the term maker, yeah. I think it's a really great uh, term, I, you know, anyway, um, when you meet another maker and you, it doesn't even matter if they make the same thing as you, you know? Like you can talk to them and I feel like when that happens, we're frequently orbiting around some version of what you're talking about. Like this, this shared emotional connection to a, to a creative act or some, like it's really about the internal experience. If, if, if that makes any sense that, that, I, that is really the thing I'm trying to get to with the show. I, I do. It's like, uh, it, it, it's a cliche, right? But, but I think the key thing with, if I understand you correctly, the key thing with making in the sense that you mean is it's like somehow it comes from the heart, you know? 
and it could just be you know you make the like the woodworking thing where you make the box or the stool or whatever the first woodworking project that people classically do um you know with a single board or something like that yeah it's something people have done hundreds of thousands of times but but it's sort of like you know, here I am and I'm like, like changing the world and it, and it sort of is me out there, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, do that... think that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that's very cool. I, I need to think on this some more. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe we'll have to have you back on and we can explore it further. Obviously you've spent time thinking about it as well. I, I, I do think um, in that long uh, soliloquy about uh, the the talk. I think I think one of the really key things about making things that really makes it work is when you find like one of these boundaries or one of these places where people haven't gone before, and step into that. That is the. Um, I mean, one of the things I really like about the stuff that you make, Craig, is that it tends to be this combination of, to me, like really um competent like woodworking or something like that combined with uh kind of uh, uh sophisticated mechanical electronics kind of stuff i'm thinking of the the, the sort of the chair that you you've yeah you've worked on you know like that combination of things where it's it's a chair that you might sit at and play a game but it's also this mechanical device that I think is really cool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just briefly for people that aren't familiar, because the G seat's going to come up again, that's on my list. <laughs> so this is a seat that I did not invent. It's a, a guy named uh, Bergeson who actually has taken the idea and gone much farther with it. At some point I will post links and everything, but the notion is that you have a chair that has movable uh, components in the seat and the back um, that are also hooked up to a harness, like a you know five-point harness, like for a racing harness, or for me, it's flight sims, that move in response to uh, the motion of a virtual vehicle. In my case, because I'm into flight sims, it would be an, an airplane. So that as you push the stick forward, the seat sort of floats up underneath you and gives you the feeling of being, um, of lifting out of the chair or hanging from the straps if you're inverted or whatever. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, so I just wanted to mention that so that we don't just leave it hanging out right. there, but, uh, appreciate that. I mean, again, it's not really my idea, but, um, but, but no, it's, it's fun. I, I've always enjoyed, um, I mean, human machine interaction is a whole category for me. Um, like I, <laughs> I built the, uh, Ergodox keyboard, which is one of these, you know, soldered together yourself, like crazy looking keyboards, even though I didn't want to be using it. It was just like really interesting to me, the notion of, a, a keyboard that is not the sort of default, you know, QWERTY uh, sitting in one place kind of keyboard. Um, and that uh, for whatever weird reason, the G seat's the same kind of thing. It's you have a computer, you have a physical device and the physical device is how you relate to what's going on in the virtual world. I like joysticks. I own oh, good God, four or five joysticks, right. For flight sims and whatnot. I've got a fairly sophisticated um, set up even including including a control panel that I built myself that has you know switches and knobs for controlling things like the gear. So, um, I, I, yeah, I think you've also touched on one of the key. Uh, like if if we had to go through the population and identify the the true makers in the population, um, and you could only ask one question. I think the question I would ask is. 
have you ever spent countless hours building something that you then never used? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, no question. In fact, uh, we were, I was talking earlier about bowls. I love making bowls. They're great. They're, the lathe is super fun because, you know, for one, for one thing, it's quick. Like you can make a bowl in an, in an hour or two or something like that. Um, but they're also pretty anyway. But so I, I should ask you that question though, uh, Russ, I, you mentioned earlier that you've been playing around with the ESP 32, 32 yeah. ESP 32. Is that the right yeah. thing? And that you haven't necessarily done anything useful that have you, have you made something anytime in, you know, the not whenever that you like got really into making it. And then when you were done, you're like, all right, I could throw this away now and it wouldn't matter. I, you know, so I was thinking about it. So, uh, about two thirds of the way into the pandemic, I decided for reasons which I don't understand to learn how to bind books. Um, and so I have half a dozen books of more or less good quality. Um, you know, the beginnings less so, uh, just kind of blank, like notebook kind of books that are sitting on my shelf that, you know, I already have a pile of notebooks in my closet that I bought at Target, right? I don't really need another notebook, but uh, yeah, and I'm sure there are. Uh, uh, well, so so the, the the other thing is that I have built enough cigar box guitars in my life that I could n- never actually like play them all. Uh, yeah, could you? I mean, I've seen these and they're they're really cool, but maybe you could describe them for our audience. Sure. I mean, so, so it's uh, so the. You know, if you if you put a shirt and tie, uh, put it in a suit, the the official description is improvised musical instruments, which sounds so much better. <laughs> but basically, there's a long tradition in the United States, particularly in the American South, particularly among uh, African American people, of improvising musical instruments. And it turns out that cigar boxes were traditionally made out of cedar, which is what you would make a guitar out of. And so um, take a cigar box, essentially cut some holes in either side of it, run a, uh, you know, one by two through it so that you have sort of a neck and then put some kind of strings on it and you have a musical instrument. Um, and the, you know, you know, I started making them, we, uh, I don't know if you were there, but it was uh, some of our coworkers. We were at a company meeting and we had sort of a day off and we just kind of went larking around uh, music stores. And one of these music stores was selling a really nice cigar box guitar. And of course, we're a bunch of engineers. We stand around and we don't say, oh, what a lovely thing. <laughs> we say, oh, I can build that. You know. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wasn't there, but it's like I I could have been. And and you know you you uh, like so how, you know how many times did that happen in your life and then you never actually do it? Well, the key thing oh, yeah. was that one of the people there, uh, uh, one of our coworkers, happened to have an old guitar, and so he went home that night and took it apart, and he gave me. I think a tuner and a pickup, like, Hey, you're going to build this thing. Well, here, here's a tuner and a pickup. Um, and now I had this tuner and this pickup that someone had given me and I sort of felt required to actually like, you know, that's like the, the thing that made me start moving. So I found the cigar box and I built this incredibly primitive thing, um, which actually made something that sounded vaguely like music. And mm-hmm. I, you know, it's right. It's like, uh, 
it's the road the hell is paved with uh paved with projects you know a sequence of projects <laughs> in your basement or something um, you know once. i built the next one and that was nicer but i wasn't but i could you know, I finished it and I realized, oh, I'd made half a dozen rookie mistakes and then I built the next one and the next one. <laughs> but the, the thing that I find really cool about, about cigar box guitars is, no, they are not, you know, I have a $2,000 acoustic guitar. My cigar box guitars do not sound like my really good acoustic guitar. Sure. But they sound like music. They, they are mm. completely acceptable music. And so the... They, it, the thing I find fascinating about them is just how easy it is to get above sort of the minimum, this thing is just making noise to, oh, that's actually music. Yeah, you know, uh, if I spent some time with it, I could actually make, you know, reasonable sounding music. That barrier really is not that high. Um, it's not as high as you think. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah, making making like a... I actually, uh, I bought a kit made and made a made make a bass. I assembled a bass, yeah. but it was it was kind of cool. And I, I do have it in my mind at some point to make to make a bass guitar and and ideally someday to make a cello. That's like the there you go the the big. The, it's interesting to hear you say that you don't think that getting something that would at least make cello like sounds would be um, hard because it seems pretty intimidating to me. Like the, the the idea that I would make something that would be at all musical is kind of questionable in my mind. Yeah. So uh, I, I think probably, I, I mean, there, there's one possible future where I keep doing this and eventually I make, and I'm doing air quotes now, real musical instruments. Right. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I could see myself maybe, I don't know, you know, you never, uh, I, I don't have a huge desire to do it right now, but I am, um, you know, my cigar box guitars are getting, uh, uh, incrementally more sophisticated and, and that kind of thing. I think, uh, so I, I don't know if this is true for you, but if I were going to build the cello, I would start out to build the crappiest cello that I could actually finish, you mm -hmm. know? Um, because once you built that first one, you will know how to build the better one. Yep. Uh, so we had Paul DeGrandis on the podcast. Another, uh, we, we all work together, the three of us. And he talked about, um, having built or modified like I think he said 12 espresso machines oh. <laughs> and have about how, you know, just this notion of, you know, um, so these things are under pressure, right? They have high pressure steam inside them. Right. And the notion that you would take your first espresso machine and kind of put it in your kitchen and stand next to it every day while it's, you know, putting high pressure steam through it is kind of to your point, right? Like where, it's, I mean, the stakes are lower with a cello. Like it's unlikely to injure me. Right, right. What's the worst thing it's going to do is fold up under the tension, right. you know? Right, um, so. right. That, and that is, um, so that's one of the other things that cigar box guitars, I think, makes me think about, which is that there's like this standard design for a cigar box guitar, which is called the through neck. And essentially mm -hmm. what that means is you take the, you know, the, one by two or whatever you're using for the neck of the guitar and you run it all the way through the box to the back. And the reason you do that is that that ensures that that solid piece of wood is taking up all the tension of the strings. If you think about mm -hmm. a guitar, it's a little bit like a bow from a bow and arrow, you know, it wants the sort of curve and for, 
any guitar-like instrument, you really don't want it to do that. Um, and so if you have a single solid piece of wood that runs all the way through the thing, you're pretty much guaranteed that it's not just going to fold up on you. But real guitars, like the things you buy in music stores, are not like that. Like real guitars, the, the body takes up a lot of the stress, which is kind of a feat because those bodies, you know, the body of a guitar particularly the front, the top is what they call it. The, you know, the part of the guitar body that you see is mm -hmm. very thin wood. And so it's very carefully braced and, you know, so that it can take all the stress. And so most people who build cigar box guitars, they use this through neck uh, technique because they don't want them to fold up. But the average cigar box guitar costs, I don't know, $25 to make, right? <laughs> like basically nothing for the cigar box, maybe $3 piece of wood, some strings, you know, really. And so it's like, uh, so one of the things that I'm doing uh, or getting ready to do is trying to figure out how to build a not through neck uh, cigar box guitar, one that had, has some bracing in the box where the box, the body of the guitar takes the, the strain. Um, and, you know, honestly, if my first 10 fold up and, and just destroy themselves when I put tension on the neck, I don't care. Right. It's 20 bucks. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so I assume you're familiar with a concept called a torsion box. Uh, let's pretend that I went to mechanical engineering okay, so, school so. a very long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I don't know whether this is practical for uh, for uh, for what you're trying to do, but it's the notion that you can uh, take uh, essentially like a, a grid of um, well, let's assume you're making a wood out of out of board. So imagine you know like there's vertical lines and horizontal lines, yes. and they intersect, and then you skin that. You put a you put a thin panel on the front and the back. This is well known to have to be extremely strong yes. for a given weight, right? Yeah, I, so I, 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 I would imagine the, you're doing something like that. I didn't like know that. the term, yeah, okay. but I do know the idea. Yeah, yeah, you can you see this in woodworking sometimes, where people need to make something really light. Um, the compromise usually is thickness, right? So uh, to get st strength, it needs to have. Uh, you can imagine that if it were only like a millimeter thick, you wouldn't have enough in the ribs to right, make it right. stiff. So you got to make it thicker. But if you do that, you can make like a tabletop that is extremely strong and extremely light. So I, I, I find that that's, I, I'm not a mechanical engineer. I was a, tr you know, tr went to school for as electrical engineer and have not used that at all. <laughs> in fact, it's kind of funny. I'm sitting there in my shop, you know, working on this um, electronics project and like, I can't solder and I can't, <laughs> I can't make cables and like, you know, things are shorting out and I'm like, yep, $100,000 for a college education. Yeah. Well, you were 19 when you decided you were, that's what you wanted to do with the rest of your life, right? Fair point. Fair yeah. point. And I don't regret yeah. it either. So that's good. Yeah, the, the, the interesting thing about, so, so as I've been thinking about this, I've been looking for pictures of how how real guitars are braced, right? Every like most stringed musical instruments, there's the skin on the outside, but as you say, there's sort of there's bracing inside, like thin pieces of strips of wood that are glued to the inside of the instrument to obviously make it stronger. And if you particularly old guitars, so you would think that. Um, if you're trying to keep the guitar from folding up like a bow and arrow kind of bow, um, you would think 
that the bracing would want to run from the neck to the tail of the guitar, sort of long mm -hmm. ways in the guitar. But if you look at old guitar, particularly old guitars, modern guitars are different, but old guitars, the bracing tends to run from side to side. Um, and I've seen pictures of the bracing of old guitars where there is not a single brace running kind of from the neck to the tail, you know, sort of the way that you would think that you want to brace the thing. Hmm. Um, it's a mystery. I wonder if a lot of the longitudinal uh, strength comes from the, the front and the back. Yeah, I wonder. So I wonder if it's if, if the I think maybe I'm going to say the same thing, but I wonder if the, the thing is that you just need to make sure that the, the front and the back don't buckle and then it's the sides that actually take most of the strain. Mm -hmm. And so you just need to efficiently dump the stress onto the sides if you follow me. Yeah, totally. Well, maybe we have some uh, some people with some knowledge of this subject and they can drop a comment on the episode and educate both of us. That'd be great. Oh, look at you doing audience interaction there. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I would love to engage with people. And I think because I think, uh, anyway, I think we know a lot of smart people we both yeah. do. And those people know smart people and those people know smart people. So um, good stuff. Internet, right? Yeah. Good. Yeah. It's, it's good for that kind of thing. Well, cool. So, so Russ, we're kind of coming up on an hour. And as much as I enjoy our talks, I do feel like, you know, maybe somebody out there needs to use the restroom, could, could use a break. <laughs> so we should start to wind it down. But I don't want to, I never want to stop before I make sure I check in with our guests and see if there's anything else that um, they think we should talk about, because we do have a bit more time. So, so I do, um, so I do have uh, I, I guess when we talked, you had you had said you should sometimes your last question is about advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we should close it down is to ask our guests for a piece of advice that they'd like to share. Yeah, and um, I have the most amazingly mundane bit of advice that I you know I wake up every day and I think yes this this is this changes my life this is and it is so boring and so mundane that. It's hard to even say, but I think it is incredibly valuable. And that is make lists, like make hmm. lists of things you want to do, make lists of things you've done, make lists of the things you want to learn, just make lists, right? It's like the way to, uh, you know, uh, it's the way to the sort of, it's the first step to making something for, at least for me, is to put it on my list of things to make, right? And maybe, uh I, I will never get to the things, you know, half the things on my list or three quarters of the things on the, on the list, but it's, yeah, I don't know. It's like externalizing your aspirations or something. Make, make lists. So, so that's super interesting. And, and I, when I, cause I, I do a little bit of this. And, and so what I find is that um, a lot of times when I do something, it may not be a list, it might be notes, yeah. it might be whatever, um, is that I'm really good about writing it but not as good about reading it. But I've also found for certain things, not necessarily this, that sometimes, like for me, when I design a piece of software, I will spend a lot of time typing in questions. It's actually a big part of my process is, what happens if we do this? What about that? What is the trade-off with this? And uh, the resulting document is worthless to read. Yes. <laughs> but the writing of it is super, super valuable. And I wonder if you could comment on the relative, like when you make these lists, is it is it ninety percent of the value is in writing it, or is there 
50-50 or what's the split? So, so I, 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 that's a great question. I, I actually think it's it. there's a time varying aspect of it, mm. which is right when I'm writing it, the value is in the act of writing it, right? It then becomes like, you know, so I write it down and, oh, yeah, okay, so this is a thing and it's in my mind somewhere. And it's by, real. By like actually writing it down, I've sort of committed it. What, what do people say? I don't write it down to remember it. I write it down because writing it down helps me remember it. I, you know, um, I think that's the immediate effect. But then six months later, you come back to the list and you're like, oh, yes, I want to do that. Or, mm. oh, yeah, I did that. Or, oh, no, what was I thinking? You know, sort of there's <laughs> there's the the immediate effect. But then there's the I've kind of forgotten about it and I come back to it effect, you know, um, and I think they're both, uh, e- either one's worth, worth the 20 seconds it takes you to scribble something down or type it into your, into your, uh, uh, Emacs buffer or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I will have to think on that some more. I think I definitely could be doing, uh, more with respect to reading them and your, your comments about, about how that might have value or, I will, I will reflect on them, which is great. I think anytime that the guest gives an advice and I'm like, I need to think about that some more, it feels like a really good one, a good way to end the show. So, uh, boy, Russ, I knew that you'd be a great guest. Well, thank and I'm, you. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm still kind of, like I said, I'm still sort of figuring out what it is I want to, what I want to say. I do feel like there's something so, here. So I, I, <laughs> uh, and I, I, go ahead. If I could just interrupt you, I will say of this, course. that... You and I, for years, have taken these uh, six-hour there and six-hour back car trips once mm-hmm. a year, uh, sometimes twice a year, occasionally. Um, and for me, um, this was like one-twelfth of a weekend I've looked <laughs> forward to for a long time. So yeah, thanks totally. for that, if nothing else. Yeah. No, I, I feel the same way. It, it was always always fun talking to you. And, uh, and I knew you would be a, um, a good person to talk about this topic this you know this again you know you've you you have like our other guests have like moved me along a little bit further on you know yes get smarter and make stuff but there's something else there and so i've been really interested to explore it with uh, the people i've had on and 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 you're no exception so anyway thanks again for coming on it's it's always great to talk to you um really appreciate you uh, taking the time and hopefully we can get you to um drop a few photos of the things that you've made, maybe the cigar box guitars, or um, uh, I'll certainly put a link to the, your your cover art for the show, because that's cool stuff too. And we'll get a few other things from you and put on the show with the show notes. But uh, really, I do appreciate you coming on. It was great to talk to it's you. It's been my pleasure, Craig. It really has. All right. And thanks to our listeners for sticking with us. This has been uh, Get Smarter and Make Stuff. been listening to Get Smarter and Make Stuff. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Visit the show online at getsmarterandmakestuff.com. That's all spelled out, all one word. Go there to subscribe to and comment on the show, read the blog, view the gallery, and find a link to the Get Smarter and Make Stuff YouTube channel. Come on by. We're also on Twitter at Make Smart Stuff. If you enjoyed the show and feel like sharing with others you think might like it too, I'd certainly appreciate it. Thanks for listening and see you next time.